Good morning, Watermark. Today, we're in Acts chapter 7. We're continuing our journey through the book of Acts. And um, I'm not going to start with the scripture reading today. I'm going to get to that um, after a little bit of sort of setup and talking about this. Um, Stephen is giving a speech to the Sanhedrin. And he has been brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this um, a group of leaders in the Jewish temple uh, in the first century made up of like Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. Um, and Stephen is basically um, given a chance now to make his defense before these um, religious, powerful religious men. Um, he's been charged with heresy um, and he's in danger of being killed for two things that he is being accused of. Now these are, these are false accusations, but there's two things he's being accused of. Um, endorsing the, the destruction of the temple, which he wasn't, and criticizing Moses and the Mosaic law, which also he wasn't. Um, so before I read these verses today, which consists of Stephen's defense, we're going to read the first half of Stephen's defense. Next week, we're going to read the second half. And um, again, this is his heresy trial. Uh, but first, I want to talk to you about what he's doing with his telling of the story. Um, because he's about to tell the story of Jesus. He's about to tell um, the story of, of who Jesus is. And so um, before we actually read Stephen's um, retelling of the story of who Jesus is, I want you to kind of ponder in your own mind and ask yourself, if I asked you to tell the story of Jesus, how would you do it? What would you say? What would it sound like? Um, where would the story begin? Oftentimes in modern Western Protestant evangelicalism, the story of Jesus starts with a problem. It starts with God has created you to go to heaven when you die, but you've sinned. Um, and so now you can't go there. Um, and then we would say Jesus came to fix that problem, uh, by, I guess people would say different things, but most would say by making a blood sacrifice so that your sin could be covered and then you can die when you go to heaven. Um, of course, this is all very simplified. It's honestly kind of a straw man, but I, I'm just going to keep moving. Um, this is a simplified way of telling the story. And there are all kinds of different individual facets um, that come into play when Christians of different denominations tell this story. There's places we might differ on how exactly Jesus makes things right. Uh, and I, I, I'm not here this morning to judge the merit of that theology here and now. Um, instead, um, I want to point something out. Um, I, I present all of this like you to point out that the story that we tend to tell, which we call the story of Jesus, is really a story about us. Um, we are at the center. We are born into a situation. We need to find a way out. Um, at the center of that story is human beings, and not even a group of human beings. Uh, individuals, you and you and you and you and you, just individuals, each have their own sort of story in the telling of this thing, normally when we tell it. Um, and it says basically that the story is basically that everyone is on their own, and everyone is born losing a cosmic game because a previous player made a mistake. Uh, and now, uh, you have to sort of solve the puzzle before you die, find the right path, learn the right story, believe the right thing so that in the end it will go well for you. Um, and this is how we tell the story. But when we tell the story this way, that story is about us. Um, 
I would argue that when we look at how Stephen tells the story, when we look at how Paul tells the story, when we look at how Jesus tells the story, we're going to look at all three of these things this morning. I would argue that this is not what they're doing. Um, and I would argue that to read Acts chapter 7, Stephen's story of Jesus, to read this text um, like this is to read it poorly. Um, I think if we read it like a theological jigsaw puzzle or a historical sort of recitation, that is a poor reading of this, of, what, of, of Acts chapter 7. Stephen's story is not a story about Israel. Stephen's story is not even a story about himself. Um, and to be plain, the entire book of Acts is nothing about being saved from hell. Um, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, is doing something different. The author of the book of Acts is, is very focused on presenting the Christians as, as a group of people who understand who God is and then orient their life around what that means, okay? Uh, and that has different sort of repercussions for the world, good and bad, um, d depending on, on the part you're playing in the story. Now, um, now, with that being said, let's jump into this story, shall we? Um, so Stephen tells the story begins, he begins really in Acts chapter 7. He starts in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start, uh, I'm sorry, he starts in verse 2. I'm going to start in Acts 7, 1. It says this. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Um, hold on. Um, those charges, that would be the two things that he's being charged with, speaking against the temple and the law. Verse 2. To this, he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Okay, I'm going to pause here for a second. Stephen, when he tells the story, unlike a lot of other people, doesn't start with Abraham. He doesn't start with the patriarchs. He starts with God. He starts with the God of glory. He says, the God of glory appeared. So the center of the story is God and God's work and God's mind and God's communication and that God goes to somebody. So the camera is specifically on God here. Um, for Stephen, the story is about God. For the early Christians, for the apostles, the story was about God. God is the central character of the story of Israel. Israel is not the central character of Israel's story. At the center of the camp, the tabernacle, and the glory of God over the tabernacle, right? Um, God is the center of Israel's story. Israel's story is not about Israel, okay? Let's keep reading now. Uh, let's start in verse 4. We're going to go all the way to verse 16. Uh, verse 4. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to, his, uh, to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance there, here not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time, Abraham had no child, God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. 
And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave wisdom, uh, he gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of, of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors, ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. I'm going to stop there. We're going to cover the rest of this story next week, but we're going to... I want to make a few observations about this. First off, the entire time, God is the central character. Um, verse seven, right in the middle, it says, it says, God was with them. Verse eight, God was with them. Um, uh, verse 10, God rescues them. Um, uh, the central character is God orchestrating things along. So God is our central character and he takes a hold of a man, Abraham, and he makes Abraham new. Uh, by taking him out of Mesopotamia, where he worshiped other gods, God goes to Abraham and calls him and pulls him out of there and makes him a sojourner, a journeyer. And then from him, he creates a people who are sojourners. Okay, The story has a God who is present everywhere, takes a man and makes him a wanderer of the earth and makes him into a people who are wanderers of the earth, right? Who are on a spiritual journey. Um, and this journey is going to include several things. It lays out um, wandering without a home, no place to call yours for a long time, uh, being strangers. Um, and for 400 years, they're going to be slaves. That's part of the story as well. And then he's going to punish the slave owners. He's going to set the slaves free. Um, and so God makes this covenant. He tells the whole story and he makes this covenant um, with Abraham that he's going to take them on this journey. And at the end of this journey, when it's all over, they will find the world made better, okay? Now, Abraham has this promise, okay? And Abraham now, out of his land with this promise, he begins living with this promise. So what does it mean to live with the promise? All that means is, honestly, waiting. God made a promise, and now he's just waiting. Uh, and he spends most of his life waiting, honestly. This is, this is what Abraham does with his life. He waits. And... Um, Finally, in sort of like the ninth inning, if you will, Isaac, his son, is, is the son of promise. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> his son of promise is born. And now they, um, Isaac waits for a bit, and then, and then Jacob and his 12 sons are born, and they begin their time of waiting for the covenant of God um, and for, for his own hand to do what he said he was going to do. Okay. Now, in all of this, the central theme of Israel's story is you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait. God is doing something. You're just going to have, there's a promise. And the waiting is everything. And they're going to be formed by the waiting. This is actually God's whole move. 
is that they are formed by the waiting that they're in. Um, they're going to come to know in the waiting for their, them to get their land, for them to establish the kingdom of God, for them to, for the blessing to be, for, for the world to be made right. They must wait. And while they're waiting for all of this, they discover who they are. They discover who God is. And they learn to become God's people by waiting. God doesn't just take them and lead them into this thing. There's a process that they have to work through, that they have to go through. Okay? So, um, I want to talk about the idea of, of the family photo album. Okay? Right over my right shoulder. Not, that's Rob the Robot. Over here, um, I have some sort of artifacts of the family, if you will. So, this is a picture of my grandfather. Who do we got? Preeson, uh, Preeson Peak Phillips. Uh, see, uh, this is Junior, actually, um, whom I'm named after. My middle name is Preeson. My son's name is Preeson Peak Phillips III. Um, and over here, we got some of his stuff. I got, I got some, some coasters with the triple P on them, Preeson Peak Phillips. Um, my dog ate one. Um, I have his, uh, we got some, we got some like glasses and we got some, uh, we got a Bible and, and like a grooming kit. Um, cause, uh, you got a manscape. And then we have, um, Behind this, we have this American flag here. Now, um, this is a flag that was draped over the casket of his father, Priest and Peak Phillips Sr., when he died. Okay, so um, my family has a history. Not all Americans can trace their history. There's a lot of people whose history has been erased. Um, our African-American brothers and sisters, many of them cannot follow their history back because they were enslaved and stolen and brought here. Um, but there's a lot of people who, who can tell their story. Um, I, I'm privileged to know my story um, for at least a little ways. And I'm privileged to be able to actually research where I came from. Um, so um, my, my father is, is a pastor. Um, I actually have a brother who's a pastor, another brother who's a missionary. I guess Jesus is like the family business. Um, and uh, poor choice of words. And um, my grandfather was a pastor and a church planner up in sort of New England. Um, and both he and his father served in the military, uh, World War I and World War II. Um, so I know a few other things. I know we are of Irish descent. Um, you can trace the Phillips name, immigrated to the U.S. in the mid-1800s, early, early to mid-1800s. Uh, and several of us actually worked and died on the Titanic, Phillips's, believe it or not. Um, and so we have a family crest. Like it goes back a long way, all the way back to like Ireland a very, very long time ago. Uh, and so the story that I'm living out, I say all of that to get to this point. The story I am living out right now is directly affected by and is indeed a continuation of the Phillips family story that goes back a very long ways. Um, the fact that I am right now a pastor in Florida is the direct result of the past experiences of the Phillips that came before me. Okay. Um, without their journeys, moving around the world, studying things, coming to conclusions about God and teaching those things to their children. I would not be here. I don't have any other family in Florida. Now I used to, we used to all live in Florida. Now they're scattered around everywhere else. Um, uh, and I am here. And the reason I'm here is because of the family journey. And so in order to get to Tommy, doing this. And in order to get to you, wherever you are doing what you're doing, 
you would have to wade through hundreds of years of history first. You have to wait. Okay. We don't get, I don't get Tommy sitting here preaching a sermon, doing what I believe is the right thing and doing God's will. Um, without the story happening hundreds of years ago. Okay. Your story didn't start with you. My story didn't start with me and it doesn't end with you. And mine doesn't end with me. Okay. Your story is part of a larger one. Our stories are all part of bigger stories and the ultimate, um, ultimately it is all a part of God's story of, of what God is doing. And I think Honestly, the point of this sermon is to get you to that point so that you can see that. Okay. And so now I'm going to try to get you there so that you can see that your story is actually God's story. Okay. Um, first off, you need to understand that the early Christians, when it came to talking about God, they told the whole story differently. Um, when they told the story of God, they used the entire family photo album like I just did. Um, they used everybody. None of the early Christians, and I think sometimes we forget. None of the early Christians um, are reading the New, the New Testament. None of them are. When the Bible in the New Testament talks about scriptures in the Bible, it's not talking about your Bible and your New Testament. It's talking about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, right? Um, and I want you to see this because what you see with the apostles, what you see with Jesus himself is that they use the Old Testament to explain everything that had happened up to their point, okay? Their entire story. Um, why it had to happen the way that it did. Why um, Stephen and Paul and Jesus refused to do the things that they, that, that they refused to do. Um, all of it, their entire story is explained through the Old Testament from the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms, etc. And here's the problem. Most modern uh, Western American Christians cannot tell the story of Jesus from the Old Testament. They cannot store, tell the story of the church um, using the Old Testament, which means we're in trouble because we're not doing the same thing that the early Christians were doing. Uh, in fact, if you can't tell, if we as a church and a community can't tell the story using the entire family photo album, the way Stephen is doing now, we're probably in trouble. If our telling of the story doesn't even need the family story, like at the top of this sermon, the way that I presented that as like the story of Jesus is just really about some people sinned and now you are a sinner and you're trying to get out of it and you skip over the entire story of God. Okay. If your telling of the story doesn't even need the family story, I would argue that you're telling the wrong story, that you're not actually telling the story at all. I mean, it, Using the family history, the entire family photo album is what Paul does all through the book of Romans. It's what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus when he appears after the resurrection, Luke 24. It says, uh, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So he begins with Moses and the prophets and he works his way all up to that day to tell the story of Jesus because that's what they're talking about. They're talking about, they didn't know they're talking to Jesus. They're talking about this Jesus guy. Um, who they didn't know was with them. Okay, now, this is also what Stephen is doing here in Acts chapter seven. Um, the point of them telling the story this way is to say, we are all in the same story. Okay, he's talking to his opponents, technically. 
But what he's saying is we're all in the same story and that God is still revealing himself in the waiting. While we wait, still, we are still in the waiting for God's future. And while we wait, we are now still learning about who we are. We are still now learning about who God is. Uh, while we wait, we are still trying to grasp that somehow the work of God's people is to remain faithful in the waiting. And I mean, how much more does that resonate with us now while we currently are waiting ourselves? Um, in this waiting, we are still trying to grasp that somehow the work of God's people is to remain faithful to God, not to pull away and start looking for another answer and not to start following other kings, okay? Who you are today came through the experience of time and waiting. It did not start. Who you are today did not start five to 10 years ago. The person that is you uh, is made up and formed by the experiences of your entire journey. That is your story. No matter how healthy you think you are, pay attention to this. No matter how healthy you are today, without those huge, deep plunges into the depravity in your life, you would likely never have a lot of the good parts that you now have. Without those bad parts, you would not know how, now have those good parts. Those are the parts that taught you about you. Those are the parts that taught you about God. Those are the parts that taught you about love, betrayal, joy, forgiveness, mercy. Those are the parts that formed you, and it is in the waiting to become this person that you are being formed. You are right now being formed into the next person that you will be, that God has for you to be. We should never waste a moment of the waiting. We should be learning. This is also true of God's people. If you've ever studied church history, Every, by the way, here's a plug for this. Every other, two, uh, every other Thursday, we are doing church history for lunch. We did one uh, Thursday this week, and we studied uh, Justin Martyr. And it always goes on rabbit trails, and we talk about the entirety of church history. And if you've ever actually read church history, uh, you'd actually be pretty mortified at what both, what the, at, at both what the church has, has been through, and even more so, probably by what it has been a part of and what it has done, okay? Our story is not a good one. It's not roses, okay? Um, let's talk a little bit about this. In the 15th century um, of church history, the popes and the cardinals had harems of concubines that lived and traveled with them wherever they went. Um, and they were burning reformers like uh, Savonarola and Jan Hus. They were burning them alive uh, for confronting with what they saw as these papal errors that I just mentioned. Okay. Um, and then in the 16th century, if you move forward a little bit in the 16th century, church leaders are, are actually hiring mercenaries in city states like Florence. Okay. To, to kill people for the church. Okay. In fact, this was so prevalent that mercenaries looking for work were pouring into Italy um, during some of the church councils, they were mercenaries from all over the world are pouring into Italy to kill people for the church. This is real. This happened. Okay. Now it doesn't get any better when the reformers came along in the 15th, six, uh, in, in the 16th century, 
Okay. Uh, when the reformers finally started coming into power, they turned into the very people that they were fighting against. Uh, at the beginning of, of, um, of Luther's ministry, he was arguing against bigamy, uh, that it was against the will of God. Um, and then at the end of his, once he's in power, um, he is defending bigamous marriages of his friends like Philip of Hesse. Uh, and then at the beginning, he had this, at the beginning of his ministry, he had this love for the Jewish people and this grace for them. And at the end of it, he's raging against them and urging his German countrymen um, to burn synagogues and Jewish schools to destroy their homes and prevent their rabbis from teaching under penalty of death. Okay. And, and now um, powerful reformers like Calvin and Zwingli and all these, um, they're even taking part in the murders of theologians that they disagreed with, men like uh, Servetus, um, whom they burned at the stake for disagreeing with, with their views of the Trinity, theological views, um, torturing and burning Anabaptists like Sattler and drowning his wife after killing him in front of her eyes. Like The family story is dark, you guys. It's dark. It has many dark moments. This has always been true of every family tree. It's true of your family tree. It's true of my family tree. Even in the scriptures, these stories, um, they are told. This is the important part. When you read the Bible, you read stuff and you're like, there's just some terrible stuff in here. There's a part where the leaders of Israel are, are literally taking a woman, cutting her into pieces and sending those pieces around to make a point. And you're like, why is this in there? Because it's the story of God's people. That is who human beings tend to be. Um, these stories have to be preserved. We can't just tell the good parts. People are constantly living against the ways laid out in the covenant. Constantly taking part in abuse, genocide, rape, murder, oppression, slave owning. Um, and yet, in all of this, if your church has somehow blessed you in some way in your life. It only did so because it has learned through these dark times how it is to exist. Our greatest leaders in church history are also our greatest shame. And that is why the story is not about us. It never has been about us. The story has always been about God and what God is doing with failures. We cannot tell the story of the modern church without the history. They are a part of our story. And beware of people who are polishing it all up to make it look better than it is. Those are people who are telling you a story that is about them. The story we should tell is about God. The story Stephen is telling is about God. The Sanhedrin believed that their own story, that the story of the Bible was about them and their nation, about Israel and, and, and Jerusalem and the greatness of the nation. But what Stephen does is Stephen comes along and he flips the story on its head and he retells the story to be about God. He puts the story right again and he makes it about God's faithfulness to his people in dark times, um, his faithfulness to us in the midst of our constant failures, okay? Now, there's one more thought I think you need to grasp that will help you 
in your reading, your daily reading of the text. And I hope you are daily reading the text. I always recommend three pages a day in the Bible. That'll get you through the Bible in about a year and read different versions all the time. But let me, let me lay a phrase up for you. Um, there's a phrase in Romans 117. And it's actually this phrase is all through the book of Romans. I'm going to point it out in Romans 117. Uh, it's the apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Rome and he says, for in the gospel of, uh, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, righteousness of God. Um, I want to clear something up about that phrase. Oftentimes, um, this phrase is misunderstood. Most of the time, this phrase is misunderstood. Um, this is actually the righteousness of God is one of the most misunderstood, I would argue, one of the most, most misunderstood phrases in all of church history. We tend to think that when we talk of the righteousness of God, that we are referring to God's moral character, that he doesn't sin, that he does everything right, that he is morally upright. Okay. That's what we tend to think of when we think of righteousness. Um, that is not what was, what was in the mind of the people writing this text back then. Um, to be declared righteous in the ancient world, to, for someone to call you righteous, this was a, uh, a phrase that was used. This word was used in ancient Jewish law court. Um, it's dikaiosune. Everyone say dikaiosune. Doesn't work as well when it's a tiny lens I'm talking to. Um, dikaiosune. Um, in the ancient world, Righteous, what we translate as righteousness. Uh, to be declared righteous in the ancient world specifically meant that you have kept your promise, uh, that you have upheld a, the, your end of a deal of a covenant or a contract that you had made. This is exactly what righteousness meant back then. Um, so if someone, uh, it, it basically it's something that a, a judge would proclaim upon you in Jewish law court. If you have been declared righteous by a judge, you haven't been declared someone who hasn't sinned. You've been declared somebody who was in a contract and you kept your end of the deal of the contract. And now the other person must pay up. Right. Um, so you've been declared righteous. You made a contract and you kept your end of the deal. You're righteous. So, um, righteousness of God, this phrase specifically refers to not moral uprightness. The righteousness of God refers specifically and only to, uh, God's faithfulness, the faithfulness of God to the covenant that he made to his people. Okay. I want you to grasp this righteousness of God. If God has been declared righteous, um, then God has never given up on his covenant that he has sworn that he is with his people. He has covenant to go before them and to use them to set the world to rights that he will never abandon them which is why you will see the constant question in the book of Romans. So is God righteous? In other words, has God been faithful to his people? Now, if there are only two things that the Bible teaches us, it is that number one, we are unrighteous. We've never kept our end of the deal. We are unfaithful. We turn our backs on God constantly on, on, on the covenant to be a blessing to the world. Number two, the second thing, if the Bible says only two things, first off, we are unrighteous. Second is that God is righteous. That he's faithful always. And he even uses our unfaithfulness to accomplish his work. And no matter how many times that we have turned on him, no matter how terrible our family history looks, no matter how ugly the photo album gets, God has never given up on us. That he has stayed faithful to us. And he never plans on giving up on us. 
which is exactly why the story of the Bible is not about you. It's not about Israel. It's about God. It's about God's faithfulness to his people. Romans 3, 5, Paul says, our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly. Again, righteousness is faithfulness to the, the covenant. He says, our unrighteousness, every time that we have failed, it brings out God's faithfulness more clearly. Just how committed God is to seeing this through. And somehow, when we come out of the other side of our unfaithfulness, somehow, when church history goes wrong, and it turns and finds itself on the other side, you find Jesus standing there, calling you forward again and saying, let's keep going. Picking you up out of the mud, washing, you, washing your feet and saying, let's, let's keep walking. I'm not going to leave you here. Okay? Somehow, Jesus is always standing there. The full revelation of God's faithfulness, the physical representation of it, that's the story of the Bible. Even though, that's the story of Jesus, who even though while we're torturing Jesus, he is forgiving them. And he's saying, they don't, they don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. And God forgives us and uses yet another story of torture and murder to tell the story of God's faithfulness. Even his own torture and murder. He uses that to tell the story. And so in our modern Christian idolatry, God will use this to tell his story of who he is. All of this is necessary. Every broken thing you see in the church is necessary to reveal the faithfulness of God. It reveals the beauty of God more and more and more. This story is not about you. It is not about me. It is not about us. Neither our failures nor our successes. Your story in your own life is not about your failures and your successes. It's not about your accomplishments. Your own personal story even is about God revealing himself to humanity through it all. This is where your story finds meaning. This is where the waiting becomes important. This also means that the more godly we become, the more like God we become, the more faithful we will be to each other, the more patient we will be with each other, the more merciful and long-suffering and forgiving we will be with each other. We will not walk away and abandon each other. The more godly you become, the more your relationships will weather the storms. What we are going through right now, this phase in church history, will be a part of the church's story. And it will be included in the future telling of it. And the world will see more and more and more that our story was never about us. It was about God and God's faithfulness. And so with that said, I want to turn to communion. Um, so if you have the elements, please gather them. I have them here. I have. Um, I have. Uh, the wine, which symbolizes the body of Christ, uh, the bread, the blood of Christ. I have the bread, which symbolizes um, the body of Christ. Um, this is how God's salvation has entered into this world. His body being broken, his blood being poured out. And so when we take this bread and we drink this cup, um, we are taking part 
in the communion with Christ. Um, this is the good gift. This is also the invitation. God is inviting you to allow your body to be broken and poured out for the world, for their, for their healing, for their salvation of whatever it is they need to be saved from, that we would be the body of Christ here. And so, brothers and sisters, body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing, for your forgiveness, for your restoration. Let's pray. Father, thank you for whatever it is that you are teaching us in the waiting. I pray that we would hear it. I pray that you would speak clearly. I pray that we would be formed. I pray that we'd be honest when we tell the story, not try to make it beautiful because it is not. Our end of the story is terrible. Let us be honest about our failures, about our history, about where we've come from. But then let us shine the light of you upon it and confess your faithfulness in the midst of all of it. Make our story about you. No longer let it center on us. Renew our hearts and our minds. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, wherever they are. Heal our world quickly and bring us back together again. We miss each other. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So I'd like to close today with um, the, the prayer that we introduced last week that uh, our prayer team has put together for us. Um, I'll have it up on the screen for you now. Pray it with me. God of resurrection, who has the power to raise the dead to life, Make us one body with hearts that burn for what concerns you. Help us to comfort those who grieve. Be with our healers and caretakers as they tend the sick. Protect them and give them fortitude for the duration. Still our anxious hearts and minds as we focus on you, God. You who raised Christ from the dead. Bring new life, new purpose. Out of many, make us one, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus.